This podcast was recorded on April 8th, 2020. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide updates or changes. All right. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Sherman Show podcast. We are sitting here on day 20 of the imposed uh, lockdown, stay at home, safety in place, uh, whatever uh, Governor Newsom called it here in California. And so we're hosting another remote podcast from undisclosed locations. Um, I'm here with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And uh, today we have uh, one of our more popular guests, or at least our most frequent guests that we've had uh, on the podcast, and that is Mr. Jeff Mayberry, who's a portfolio manager on the macro team. Good to be here. Th- thanks for the uh, repeated invite. Yeah, well, uh, these uh, times, uh, it's hard to, to coordinate guests, and so, as, as usual, you're our go-to guy on for everything that's going on in the markets right now. So, uh, trying to get, keep our listeners informed and update our way of thinking and so um, trying to digest the things in the market and so given where we dropped it last week uh, the podcast I think we like to pick it up and maybe Sam you can give us a little bit of insight on what's going as we going on as we sit here the morning of April 8th 2020. Yeah so if we take a look across some of the market beta starting with the S&P 500 uh, year to date we're down about 17 percent through the last night However, an interesting tidbit, as I caught the, uh, the tape this morning, it looked like we were in a bull market, at least for a little bit, if you were to you know, arbitrarily measure from March 23rd as the bottom up to where we stood uh, earlier this morning. We were over that 20% threshold that a lot of market participants look to as a, uh, a bull market versus the up 10% as a, uh, as a uh, correction. The 20% tends to be a bull or bear definition there, for better or worse. We were at 17 basis points above that. So, you who. So, Sam, what is it? Are we in a bull market or a bear market? If I own stocks at the high and they drop 20 plus percent, I think we're down about 21 percent right now from the peak, right? Um, but and then I bought on the lows um, because, you know, we had that great market timing model, right? And I buy at the lows, all of a sudden, um, I'm in a bull market and a bear market simultaneously. How does that happen? Yeah, I mean, you can, you know, we all know the person that, uh, that, pulled the perfect trade, right? I mean, if you survey people, you'll find someone that shorted it from the top, you know, ex- you know, exited that short at the bottom and went long. So in theory, you could have uh, just traded your way through that market. Yeah, you'd, you'd be in a double bull market, right? If you shorted the bear market, then you get longer <laughs> at the bottom, right? So yeah. um, well, we'll give a shout out out there to the folks that nailed that double bull market call and, um, and got it perfectly right. Uh, I'm sure they're few and far between, but there's got to be somebody out there. Yeah, and uh, you know we had our past guest uh, Terry Savage, if, you, if if our listeners recall her, being on the the Sherman Show podcast, and I think Mayberry, you might remember this quote uh, because you're the one that pointed it out to me. But those who uh, perfectly time, you know, the ups and downs of the markets consistently, you know what they're called, liars. So we'll uh, attribute <laughs> that to her. I, I probably disser- did disservice to the quote, but. Uh, that yeah, we'll, we'll just call it paraphrasing. I think that's it's interesting too because you know when we had her on, 
you know, she was talking about where all the money goes when when we have bear markets or corrections, <laughs> just losses. And I thought it was funny how, or not funny, but it's interesting how she called it money heaven. And so I know we <laughs> use that quote a lot. And so, um, you know, the thing is, is that there's been a lot of uh, dollars evaporating to money heaven. Uh, but also the good news is, is that we have a treasury that knows how to print more of those dollars. And so uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about the Fed, but maybe, uh, before we do that, uh, maybe give us an update on the other parts of the market, not just the S&P 500. Yeah, and since we're, we're pulling out uh, religious um, terms here, let's, we, I guess we can talk about the fallen angels later from uh, heaven as well. So, uh, But before we get into that, let's wrap this up with uh, moving to the bond beta of the, the Bloomberg Barclays U.S. bond aggregate uh, year-to-date through yesterday was up uh, over 3%, which is interesting because despite having touched through uh, negative, in the second half of March last year, we are still with this 3% year-to-date return on one of the best calendar year starts going back to 1996. In fact, uh, the the ag, if I recall correctly, had a drawdown of about 6%, you know, uh, through uh, second half of March, and now it's rebounded. So, so it's been an unusual year for the ag as well. Uh, but wrapping this up, gold is up about 9% on the year. WTI crude oil futures uh, on the prompt month is down a whopping 60% uh, year to date. If we take a look at uh, some sovereign bond yields on the 10-year tenor mark, uh, the U.S. Treasury is down about 120 basis points from the start of the year to, to settle in around 70 basis points, positive. Um, the German 10-year boon is down about 10 basis points to be negative 30 basis points. And JGBs, uh, the, the 10-year sovereign for Japan, is just pretty much flat on the year at around zero. If we take a look at the spreads over the past week, um, cash uh, on cash bonds for the investment-grade corporate credit here in the U.S., we're in uh, on spreads by about 65 basis points for an all-out spread of 240. Uh, high yield is at 840. That's in 35 basis points from previous week. EM is 550 bips. Uh, in, it's pretty much flat to the previous week. So that's the uh, flash on the beta for, for the various markets. You know, Sam, I want to jump on that high yield comment because uh, we've gotten a lot of inquiries from clients out there asking about, hey, at, at these spread levels, 840, you know, historically is a pretty wide. A lot of people eye when the spread in the aggregate market of, or the high yield market in aggregate gets to about 1,000 over. Uh, it's typical. I think that's usually the the definition of distressed, right? They they call that the distressed uh, index when it hits a thousand. But uh, what's interesting about that, if you strip out the energy complex, uh, yields are about a hundred basis points or so tighter um, than if you uh, include all of the names out there. And and as you as you mentioned, with WTI down roughly sixty percent on the prompt month contract, um, <clears throat> what you see is that high yield. If you just look at just the energy names. They're still trading near a spread of 2,000. So I think when you look under the hood, it's pretty interesting to see what's happened the last couple of weeks is that even though you've seen spread tightening, it's been heavily concentrated in the double B area. And energy's you know, been extremely volatile. It can have 100 basis point spread moves in a day. But there's still parts of the market between hotels, leisure, travel, as well as the energy complex that are pretty well distressed at these levels. So you know, I think that's the caveat we put out there for folks that are looking to try to allocate is that you you mentioned you're calling these things betas. I think it's important to differentiate between what the broad market looks like and what it looks like under the hood when you look at the components, because as managers, 
um, unless you want to take a flyer on a rebound uh, for oil prices or some you know government in intervention, it's going to be very challenging for those names trading at roughly a 2000 spread to survive, or at least the market is pricing in a very low likelihood of survival. Absolutely. Well, that, that just always reminds me that, you know, we always like to say, don't take any risk that you're not get, be, getting paid for. But there's there's also the sometimes no matter what the what, what you're getting paid, there's still too much risk out there. And energy yeah. bonds kind of seem like uh, they fall in that latter camp. Yeah, I think that's important, too, because uh, I did a webcast yesterday on, on our equity products and I got many questions about should I buy MLP? Should I be buying energy here? And, you know, um, wh why do I want to own any bonds at all? Because yields are so low. And, you know, I, I say, well, you know, you haven't you haven't looked around the bond market in the last month because we went from a, a world where people were stretching for yield. There was the thirst for yield, you know, the, the yield uh, starvation, as people called it. And, you know, like uh, like all the extrema out there, when you go from famine, the next the next stage is feast. Right. And so now yield is 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 abundant. Uh, but the question is, especially when you're talking about credit risk and things that can be impaired is. What's the likelihood of also getting that par back? So it's not always just return on principle. It's also return of principle. Another saying that we like to use around here. So yeah. anyway, I think I killed our conversation there. So uh, Jeff, why don't you give us an update on what you're seeing on the economic front? Uh, obviously, a lot of the data is stale. I saw um, there was an article in Bloomberg this morning that I circulated across the team that said the um, the recession model probability is 100% that we'll have a recession in the next 12 months. And so I sent it around a little tongue in cheek because uh, I know we all feel that we are in a recession. We're going to have a recession irrespective of how big the plunge is and, and what that rebound looks like subsequent. I think we all agree that this is at least a recession, but it's good to see the robustness of the models kicking in um, and at least saying there's a 100% chance because if you use like the Fed's yield curve model, right, and I hear you laughing, Sam, uh, the Fed's yield curve model only says there's like a 25% chance or 30% chance because it looks at the slope of the curve. And so no inversion, no recession, according to that model. So um, like maybe you can... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, meteorologists, astrologists, you know, who, who really knows... Um, what the forecast and ability is. But uh, Jeff, maybe you can tell us about uh, data points you're looking at on the on the economic front from the macro side that you think are pertinent and relevant today, understanding of all the uh, uncertainty out there today. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we highlight, we have a couple of things we wanted to highlight. You know, you have initial jobless claims came in at 6.6 .6 million, uh, double from the 3.3 you were talking about last week and how the 3.3 was such a high number last week. Obviously, we, we continue to expect that number to continue to increase um you know typically uh, payroll friday is a big day you know the first friday of the month is a uh, non-farm payrolls and everyone looks at that to see how or at least over the past few years have been looking at that to see how the um, economy is growing that number went uh from a positive 273,000 to a negative 701,000. um kind of what, something to note is that the number only measures through march 12th so you know us, we were just just a few days into our uh, quarantine period then, so it's expected. Actually, that March twelfth was March twelfth. That was that was the day we actually went into Double Line's BCP double. plan, right? That wasn't actually true quarantine yet. That's the uh, Double Line imposed quarantine. Oh, yeah, that we were early. We yeah. were er better to be early on something like that than uh, than late. Yeah. And uh, so you know, we expect a huge jump in the non a huge jump down. I, is that a huge fall in the non farm payrolls next month? Yeah, let's call it a fall. Yeah, yeah, definitely a fall, not a jump. 
uh, hopefully we're not jumping off the off the cliff there. Um, yeah. You know, U three unemployment rate came in at four point four, um, up from three point five. You know, what we've also we, you know we've also heard that you know the California governor came out last night and said that there's estimates of two point three million people in California have filed unemployment claims uh, since March eleventh. So that's a real you know, obviously California being in a big populous state, that's going to be, that's going to increase those numbers a lot and just shows you the magnitude of um, how low those numbers were from, from the previous. Yeah. Hey, previous Jeff. Prints. Hi, Jeff. On that note, um, I know that we talked about on the podcast last week that in the initial claims that California had a very paltry amount um, last, uh, two weeks ago on that number, um, last week's number, do you know how many of the California were included there? Do we get back up to the 1 million? At least in aggregate, I don't know. In aggregate, yeah, I believe it yeah. was. I think the last print was around one eight. Uh, sorry, eight hundred seventy-eight thousand, if I recall correctly. And the prior week to that was like one hundred twenty thousand. So. Okay, so that so means that we should go, at man. least have another million and a quarter plus um, that are going to hit the initial claims, at least from California's perspective, um, when we look at initial claims coming out tomorrow. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. Um, and so I, I guess if you so you take your non-farm payrolls number, Jeff, and 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 you and back into the U3 number. So U3 is unemployment rate, and you said it was what 4.4 percent. Right. Yeah. So if it's 4.4, and then we're talking about the initial claim. So remember that we don't have those two last initial claims prints in there, and they're roughly 10 million people um, that have filed already, and that doesn't include what we're going to see tomorrow. Um, so does that roughly give us um, uh, an, a U3 unemployment rate of about 10% currently? Sounds like yeah. a good estimate to me. Yeah. Yeah, and likely to go higher too. And so I guess the, the you know the the trillion dollar question now is you know how many of those workers come back uh, to the market and how many are continue to be displaced once we start to get some signs of a recovery here. Right, and certainly it's not going to be 100% of them come back. There's going to be businesses that fail, businesses that close down. Businesses that can run, figure they can run on less people. Um, so even if we do get this, you know, if, if the if the lockdown does get lifted relatively soon, there's going to be long lasting effects on on the overall economy from that. Yeah. So we've seen the Fed's um, emergency bazooka or, you know, I pick your favorite weapon to deploy there. Um, we saw a huge spike in the balance sheet last week. Um, maybe we can talk about a little details on how the Fed is spending that capital and, and what has been the response of the markets. Yeah, I mean, so we saw the uh, the previous print on the Fed balance sheet at about 5.2 trillion last week, and that jumped up to, or jumped up to about 5.8 trillion. I think we're supposed to be getting our our new numbers on the balance sheet uh, either today or tomorrow. So we'll see how much of that has been that jumped again. Um, but you know, I mean, a lot of this is just uh, you know, when we look at it, we were looking at this morning, what is it, 60 billion right now in uh, per day is the cap for purchases of U.S. Treasuries and 40 billion of uh, mortgage-backed securities is what we came down to on a daily basis. What's interesting to note is, you know, as we've um, you know heard from our government desk here for U.S. Treasuries, that the Fed at that 60 billion is not even getting their full allocation uh, based on the combination of dealers not selling all the tenors, but also because uh, the the Fed is actually running into their self-imposed limit of being able to pa- purchase a maximum of 70% per single issue. 
So uh, Mayberry and I were actually talking about this earlier today and kind of laughing at it, that if you recall, that $60 billion is per day for Treasury purchases is down from $75 billion where it was previously. And part of that might be because they are hitting that limits and not being able to purchase as much as they want. Yeah, well, think about it this way, too. I mean, if the, the Fed's in there and, you know, you were saying they're buying roughly $100 billion in interest rate sensitive assets, primarily treasuries and then some agency MBS in there. And that $100 billion a day and then, um, you know, it's, it's kind of wound down a little bit um, as you think about it. You have a $100 billion buyer every day. What would you expect in supply and demand would you expect interest rates to do from there, right? You'd expect that if they're deploying that amount of capital, remember, they're doing this per day. Now, and to give our listeners perspective here, when we were doing peak quantitative easing uh, back in 2013, we were doing $80 billion a month, not a day, a month, right? And that was helping kind of, um, that was helping bid prices up, right? Because you have this incremental buyer in there, which drives yields down. What I notice is that if I look at the 10-year or the 30-year, since the Fed started actually implementing this process, yields are actually higher. So to me, that connotes something going on in the market where investors and or uh, dealers are using this opportunity to offload their treasuries to the Fed, right? Because if, if the Fed was a buyer while other people were holding and or buying, it should drive prices up, right, on the marginal, um, uh, marginal demand there. So to me, it, it shows that people are concerned something about the treasury market. Uh, what do you guys make of that? Well, I think the big concern is you have, uh, you know, you have the the CARES Act of, of a trillion dollars coming out. You have, uh, you know, talk of an infrastructure spending bill of two. Well, this is going to get into the the policies, the fiscal side. Two two trillion of infrastructure spending. There's going to be another a leg onto the CARES Act. We're already talking whether it's. Um, a billion, or they're talking it down to, to, to 500 billion, a trillion, or 500 billion. Um, and they're just the, the market's likely seeing a whole bunch of treasury supply coming out in the future, in the very near future. So, there, if that, that, that supply, if the Fed's not going to be buying at all, uh, then they're going to have to, you know, that's going to need higher rates for, for people to entice people to buy into this uh, increasing treasury issuance. Well, yeah. And then also, I think, you know, investors or at least traders, uh, maybe, you know, some of these spread levels are maybe for a trade, not a long term investment. You know, they have a lot of opportunity out there. You, you can buy, you know, a five year at sub 50 basis points today. You can buy a 10 in the in the mid 70s to, to almost 80 basis points. Right. Um, but you can go out and buy high yield bonds, as Sam mentioned, for 900. Right. Um, so there's definitely a a um, uh, there's different ways to do it. now. Granted, they have different risk profiles, but I, I think it it begs the question too because we've got this from a lot of folks, uh, or at least I have on a lot of client calls in the last week or so. Is you know what does this portend for inflation, right? That if we're putting you know you'd mentioned the CARES Act, um, the fiscal response to um, this policy was north of two trillion dollars, right, from the government spending. Um, you'd mentioned the infrastructure plan. Who knows if that's ever going to get done? I've been I've been told that for three years, um, so I'm not going to hold my breath and wait for that. But but again, if you put another trillion on there, I mean, we're talking about a deficit that's you know in the mid-teens as a percentage of, D of GDP, right? Yeah. Uh, historically, I think I think from the data I've seen, uh, at least going back in the post World War II era. We haven't seen more than really a 10% deficit as a percentage of GDP. And that's assuming that GDP doesn't collapse here, right? <laughs> that, that we're getting these mid-teens number. 
So uh, I think the the big question, and and again, maybe this is why you, you are talking about higher weights, is what does this portend for inflation? Yeah, I mean, for at least maybe if you, if you break it down between you know what we see from a consumer perspective, you know, because some of this you know, the the relief package is going to consumers, uh, thankfully, and I, I think is last uh, last week we talked about is is somewhere around five hundred to six hundred billion directly. Um, that would make its way into the hands of the consumers. Ultimately, I have to question whether or not they're going to actually be spending, you know, this cash on discretionary items. So, from a CPI perspective, you might not see it show up, you know, in terms of the consumer price indices. But you know, somewhere along the line, when you start throwing printing this amount of uh, of uh, of cash, basically monetary printing, you have to assume that the dollar is going to get weaker at some point, which in some sense is uh, the definition of inflation as well. So, I mean, I think you have that kind of, uh, you know, both sides of the coin going on here and you have to see which one's going to win. Yeah, I guess you could also see that uh, for uh, the folks getting stimulus checks and let's just call it the stimulus checks, the, the 1200 per adult um, plus the 500 per child, the one-off payment. So not not the unemployment benefits or anything there. I guess you, you could see folks that take those checks and go do some discretionary spending with it. You know, uh, the fact that there is kind of some forbearance on certain mortgages and certain payments right now. Uh, maybe you could see a short-term spike in spending those, those $2,000 uh, checks for married couples out there. But uh, I guess in the aggregate too, as you mentioned too, that, you know, this $2 trillion to start with, um, that we did through um, through this policy in the CARES Act, I think that you know that doesn't appear to be inflationary to me because that's just really plugging uh, the gap. I think we talked about this last week, but plugging the gap for those folks who um, um, obviously need help because they're not working or they're working you know limited hours and not getting their full compensation. So uh, I'm not I, I don't think this first douse will cause inflation, but um, again, you you have to see how um, uh, how this responds obviously um, you know given the amount of their uh, the amount of printing that you're talking about and just injection out there it, it should have some impact on the dollar it should at least devalue purchasing power at least in a global economy o on that note thinking about the global economy um, what are we seeing in policy responses elsewhere um, I, I don't think we've seen kind of in anyone bring out the bazooka similar to the U.S., at least as a percentage of GDP to date. Yeah, I would agree. And I think, um, you know, I caught the news or the headline at least this morning. I still have to read into it, but I see that our our um, friends, partners, uh, allies, adversaries, whatever you want to call them across the, the pond there in Europe, um, were supposed to or, or did meet last night and they failed to reach an agreement on what uh, the next round of so-called stimulus spending would be through the uh, ESM, which I believe stands for the European uh, Stabilization Mechanism. Uh, if we want to throw something else into alphabet soup land, um, I probably got that acronym or the, the, the name wrong within that acronym, but they're, they're trying to meet again tomorrow. So I think it's, you know, you have a, a different situation there with, you know, um, you know, the cohort of countries that aren't are very dissimilar in many ways, you know, culture, governance and, and others and trying to reach a deal you know, within that European Union seems like it's going to be very difficult because they had already been coming into this uh, COVID-19 um, based ec economic slowdown with differences on what they wanted to do from anything from austerity to 
to fiscal spending. So it remains to be seen from from that portion of uh, of the of the global economy. Well, I don't think that uh, we've seen any announcement of something similar to the what are we going to call it? The triple P. When I was in school, we learned PPP is purchasing power parity, uh, but it's a new acronym now: the Paycheck Protection Program. Uh, Jeff, do you want to talk about what the impact is there and how well that program has been received thus far? I think uh, it, it has been well received if it was working perfectly, but as is, as is typical um, and, and as you would expect, given the short time frame of these types of things, that there's been some hiccups and uh, how I believe they started launching the, uh, the small business loans or, or the, the loans from the SBA, the Small Business Association, on Friday of last week. And we saw we got some data of wh how much loans were accepted as of Saturday. So, you know, one or one and a half days worth of of, uh, of work. And uh, they had made 1,800 loans, totaling 360 million dollars. Uh, and of that, almost 250 million went to California businesses. Uh, certainly, California has the again as the kind of the bigger population has a lot more small businesses. But also, it's kind of indicative of the fact that California went into um, you know, safer at home quarantine earlier than some of the other parts of the country. So those businesses were a little bit hurt a little bit earlier than other businesses. So I think that, you know, those number numbers should kind of level out to like a per capita an even per capita number. Uh, but it was just interesting that so much of that, of those loans went to California, uh, where certainly, you know, the rest of the country outside of California would look at that and, and uh, not be happy with that. Yeah, well, most yeah. of the world, most of the country typically likes to um, to grumble at California in general. Um, right, that used to be like the old ABC anywhere but California. <laughs> yeah. Well, it also yeah. goes to show too what you just said, Jeff. Is just you know, it's it, everything sounds good on paper and it looks great, but you know the the key part is the implementation, right? And that's what we've you know we've heard some grumbling about as well. Just people being able to get access to these loans or even through the application process, and many of them. Um, you know, some of them getting turned away, you know, for these loans as well. So um, the implementation remains a, a challenge, um, what we see. But I also caught a headline today to kind of update, you know, the, those numbers from uh, from what we saw if the with the California numbers is that J.P. Morgan said that they just themselves, they had around three hundred and seventy five thousand dollar loans totaling around 40 billion. So it definitely seems like they're going to need more money for this program. Uh, despite the challenges that it has had in its initial stages. Yeah, well, I think Mnuchin already came out and is talking about uh, trying to expand it. Uh, I think they need congressional approval, though, so uh, you, you're going to rely on our policymakers once again uh, to kind of step in there. But um, unlike you, Sam, I, in some of these headlines, I've actually been reading the stories. <laughs> and, um, you know, what we've seen is some of the uh, restauranteurs out there are talking about that, you know, uh, it's hard to to want to go out and get the loan because of the terms. The terms are set up for businesses that are expected to be back to work in like six to eight weeks. And some of these restaurateurs are, are concerned that, you know, even if business is back open, people aren't going to come in there. And so they don't want to be obligated to the liability of the loan, even though there's forgiveness if you keep people on staff and um, you you get uh, people back employed when businesses open again. There's still just that idea of um, there's risk associated with these loans as they're written. And so for like the restaurant business, I know it is quite challenging to want to take these on because essentially you're, you're getting yourself deeper and deeper in a hole and you may not be able to qualify for the forgiveness. 
Yeah, I think that it, you know, that's that's a good point, and that's going to be, you know, as they try to do a kind of a one size fits all and try to uh, make it so, try to limit at least some of the potential abuses that it, it's going to make it harder for some people to to qualify or want to uh, want to accept the loans. Okay, so let's let's talk about let's get back to kind of the Fed. So the Fed had set up these policies. I think we talked about it. We called it alphabet soup last week. Um, but some of these credit lending facilities. And so I think there's a key distinction here when we talk about these facilities because people naively say, or, or you know, maybe just not getting into the weeds too much, they, they say that the Fed's buying corporate bonds. Well, uh, the Fed is not allowed to buy corporate bonds. Um, so I find it interesting as I dig deeper into that kind of that wonky analysis, uh, what you find is that uh, essentially, the, the that Treasury is going to guarantee a small piece of this. It'll be levered up 10x effectively by the Fed. Um, the Fed will help provide liquidity, but the Fed is just providing liquidity. The Fed is not insuring those loans. And I think that's a key distinction here for folks that are thinking out there, hey, the Fed's going to buy corporate bonds a la the ECB, a la Bank of Japan. They're not exactly buying them. What they're doing is providing facilities to hold that. But the Fed is not allowed to take losses. They're only allowed to own government guaranteed stuff. And so that creates some uncertainty around that. What happens in some of these scenarios, let's say, if these securities default? Obviously, Treasury is guaranteeing the first piece. It's about 10% of it. So, you, you know, for, for our securitized experts, it sounds like an equity tranche out there. Um, <laughs> out there. But what happens if we have defaults um, that break through those levels? What ultimately happens there? Because the Fed can't ensure that unless Congress gives them that power to do so. So I think that that's a. I just want to uh, point it out to folks that if you're buying corporate bonds, thinking the Fed's going to buy and guarantee those loans, um, that's not actually the case. They're they're just out there helping provide liquidity, but it's still um, the the facilities out there that are going to take the losses, right? So um, I do find that part a little interesting that. People are throwing around, and there's been this strong performance of the IG market, uh, investment grade corporates, I should say, um, th given the idea that the Fed's going to buy these assets, even though um, it is a nuance there, but um, it could be a key distinction when they, when there are default problems. So, and Jeff, that, as, you, as you said, is that if the, if it's a lever 10 times and they take a 10% loss, does that mean your assets take a 1% loss and you eat through that entire 10%, um, you know, as you refer to it, an equity tranche? Well, I, I think you actually, if it's an equity tranche, the equity should take the loss, right? So that ultimately means the taxpayers would take the loss on that piece if it's That's treasury I mean. guaranteed, right? Correct. But it's only, is it only a 10, is it only a 1% uh, loss you have to take on a 10, 10x levered yeah. vehicle? So that's, you know, when you think, oh, 10%, yeah, not, the entire investment grade corporate bond market is not going to take a 10%, you know, loss. It's right. uh, because of that leverage is actually only 1%, which yep. seems... You know that obviously that's a much easier to to hit that uh, that hurdle than it is the ten percent loss. And that's a very key yeah. distinction. Yeah. Go ahead, Sam. No, I was going to say. I mean, I think you pointed out earlier too. Is ultimately, it seems like with the Treasury as almost the backstop here, it's the taxpayers that are going to bear the brunt. And at that point, does the one percent sound palatable for something that's designed to be purchasing or supporting corporate America? I just don't know if it's going to be. You know, something that's acceptable or not. So it really comes down to what the Fed is going to look at and how they, you know, what at what point do they buy? 
Well, let's let's talk about how this impacts the investor grade corporate market. So, Sam, you sent me through some data updated. Maybe you want to go through thinking about how um, how credit has performed since the announcement of this program. I think it was uh, March 23rd when that was announced. It seems to be the bottom, at least the local low, let's call it for now, um, in investor grade corporate debt. Uh, can you give us an update on what that looks like? And then we can talk about some of the dynamics going on within the investor grade corporate market. Yeah, well, actually, uh, I'm not going to take credit where the credit isn't due. It was Mr. Mayberry that uh, uh, created this table for us, but I'm happy to go through it. And the way that uh, Mr. Mayberry had laid it out is, you know, you've got the the ver- you know, the peaks and the troughs, basically. So from a drawdown perspective in corporate America, if we're looking at it uh, through the, the broad index, and we've already talked about why that may be fallible, uh, based on knowing what you own, but let's just use the start off the broad index here um, in IG corporate credit. We saw a drawdown uh, from the peak in March 6th down to the trough in on March 20th of about 15%. Uh, different dates on the high yield corporate credit market with a peak of 220 um, and the trough of uh, March 23rd, and that's all a peak to trough drawdown of 21%. Subsequent recoveries on that have been around, you know, eight to, to nine percent um, uh, from that bottom on on those pieces there. Uh, it's pretty interesting to see as a percentage of recovery. That's about 43 percent of the, the USIG corporate credit market and about a third of that for for high yield. So um, those are the the IG corporate credit is what is purported to be supported by the Fed. So perhaps we've seen a, a little bit more there. But if you break it down, um, you know, within IG corporate credit, what really has rallied most, uh, unsurprisingly, based on what we've talked about, is the AAA side of corporate credit. Um, it's seen about a 66% of uh, recovery of its previous drawdown. Um, but I'm not sure what size of uh, what size the AAA corporate credit market represents of the total index today. I want to say it's uh, low single digits. I think that's right. And then the high yield market, as I kind of alluded to earlier, and I'm going to pilfer Mr. Mayberry's data give him no credit to talk about it, just make him do the work. Um, but, you know, it, it, you see the recovery in the double Bs, the double Bs reco- recovered about 40% roughly of its drawdown, but the triple Cs are still near the lows, right? They've only done about 10% or so of of their, uh, of their the drawdown is what they've recovered so far. So after having almost a 30% drawdown, uh, having a 4.5% recovery doesn't feel very strong. And so I think that's the key when people are looking at these things is that, you know, um, it's not that just because risk on um, it, So I'll, I'll call risk on here, the S&P 500. So um, I know talking to clients like, oh, S&P is up 20 percent. Corporate bonds must be back to new highs. Right. Um, it's for the farthest or furthest thing from the truth at this point. And I think the bond market is used to digesting pain a little bit better here. And so what it's saying is that the bond market's not as convinced because remember, we're not talking about return on principle, we're talking about return of principle. And so the bond market tends to get a little bit more dire in these lower quality assets and and rightfully slow. Um, I think we've seen similar behavior within the structured finance area. Uh, the structured finance area is probably depending on what the credit quality is, the higher quality I think has done, you know, if you're talking about AAA securitized, um, I think it has a similar recovery in that 60% or so um, off of its its drawdown. But some of the lower quality, the mezzanine type tranches and lower rated, even the investment grade, the lowest rated tranches like CMBS, the triple B market 
has really only plowed back maybe about 15 to 20 percent uh, of that uh, drawdown. So there definitely is a, a differences of opinion based on the sectors of the market and how they're pricing um, the shape of this uh, recovery or at least the length of, of the drawdown at this point. Yeah, and I, I think one interesting thing to know, too, going back to the, the high yield component with the triple C's, you know, it, it, it brings us back to what you were talking about earlier in the podcast, Jeff uh, Sherman, and that uh, the energy market is really probably weighed down the, the high yield market. And I'd be, you know, I haven't done the analysis yet, but I'd be willing you know, to make a bet that a good portion of those triple C uh, indexes probably resides in energy credit names you know, at this point. Yeah, I I did uh, not just read the headline there, but spoke with our high yield PM on that yesterday. And so, um, you know, what, what's funny when you look, not funny, but if you look at the composition of the triple C market, um, it's stuff that does present a challenge going forward. It's energy, it's gaming. So think uh, Vegas, um, you know, not not in a good manner either. Um, and there's still some of the, the telecom stuff that's down there as well. So it is it is a very challenged area, especially given the uncertainty out there right now. But um, you know, I think it's important, and and this is one thing that I really wanted to focus on today is you keep calling these things betas, Sam. And when I you know thinking about beta, we know kind of what equity beta is. You're talking about buying the index here, but there's been some kind of um, there's been a little bit of turmoil. I'll say um, that's my phrase in the index um, providers where some index providers have decided to um, not rebalance or reconstitute their indices at month end um, in March, and some have. And so it's led to kind of some uh, potential dispersion going forward. Um, maybe one of you can pick up that conversation and talk about what's what's transpired within these index providers, and then I'll come back with an opinion on why I think that is. Yeah, so actually um, for you know, perhaps what I can do is I could read uh, a couple segments from this article uh, that Bloomberg printed out, and then perhaps Mayberry can talk about the potential implications for. Wait, for so Sam, you actually ETFs. read the article? You didn't just read the headline? Well, the one I'm looking at is actually bullet pointed, so there's okay. only a, a few bullet points. So that's there's no pictures, <laughs> but uh, there was a bullet point there. So uh, the Bloomberg article was dated um, March 25th, and what it said is that ICE data indices postponed the rebalancing of fixed income indices. Uh, for months that which were scheduled for March end, uh, month end, March 31st, and they're delaying it for one month to the end of April, uh, following a consultation with market participants. So the provider of ICE B of A indices will not be providing the, the rebalancing, nor will the provider of the, you know, the popular IBOX indices as well. They both postponed uh, normal rebalancings uh, for the month of March. And one thing to note here is that the the Bloomberg uh, indices did rebalance, the mm -hmm. like the Bloomberg Barclays uh, aggregate index did rebalance. So there is a there is that discrepancy between your index providers, and you know you want to talk about implications is that uh, some popular ETFs are using the IBOX indices, and some of them use the um, use the, the the Bloomberg Barclays indices. And so if you had a, and there's, there are at least two names I can think of on top of my head, uh, some fallen angels from investment grade to high yield, you could either have a double exposure depending on uh, which investment grade and high yield ETFs you own, or you could have no exposure to uh, those fallen angels depending on uh, which, which ETFs you own. So 
it's you know it's it's an odd time and depending on what how how things work out you might be happy you have no exposure or you may be uh, <laughs> sad that you uh, you don't have double exposure uh, but certainly feels like the you know it's something to keep in mind where you know i think what, what jeff was getting to is that all betas are not equal uh you kind of have the s p 500 for equities uh but you could look at you know you know, we tend to look as we as we kind of brought up last week. You look at the Dow in in large market movement days because those numbers are more fun to look at. Uh, but even in the fixed income land, when you think of high yield or investment grade, there are differences between uh, each of the indices. Yeah, yeah and uh, this is definitely going to be a problem, you know, as we go forward because you know Deutsche Bank you know estimated that in the month of March alone that there were already. $90 billion uh, worth of uh, downgrades in from IG into high yield or the so-called fallen angels. So, yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's interesting you point that out and you know, that not all these are created equal. So it's, it's the, always the caveat emptor, you know, know what you own. But, you know, I think that what this shows is that, you know, a lot of these indices and again, this is maybe more of a criticism of the ETF market because of the prevalence of the ETFs now that the index providers under more pressure. And I think the key distinction that I going that I garnered from that article um, that Sam was mentioning is that it was after consultation with market participants that they decided <laughs> to um, just delay the rebalancing or reconstitution of the index. And to me, what that speaks of is that hey, uh, our ETF is going to be damaged or hurt or, or maybe uh, not perform as well if we implement these changes. And so it's one of those instances where the ETF players likely have some say here on forcing the indices um, into a position. So again, rightly or wrongly, time will tell uh, whether it's a benefit or a detriment to investors in those products. However, I do think it is interesting that when people think about passive and indexing, they are different things. And so I, I've always made a key distinction on a systematic strategy versus an index strategy versus being truly passive. And this just shows you, I think, with the economic interest of, of the ETF business, the licensing that goes behind these indices, that um, these in, index providers may not be as, let's, uh, I'll put air quotes around again, independent as they have been in the past, because there's this economic incentive to, I'll, I'll call it placate um, the ETF, uh, the ETF sponsors here. So again, not a criticism of the ETF market, but just understanding that it does have an influence on um, the way these indices are being constructed today. And so again, when people think about ETFs and indexing, oh, it's just passive. Well, realize that now um, these index providers have made an active decision to not reconstitute. Um, it's like one of those pension plans we saw out there. I don't know if you brought that up on the last one, Jeff, but one of the large pensions plans here locally in Los Angeles um, was talking about delaying their rebalancing schedule uh, because of dislocation of markets. And so, you know, what's the point in being disciplined and systematic if you're going to overwrite the rules? And this is one thing that, you know, Sam and I, uh, when we first started working in the commodity business or um, at Double Line, um, that was one thing that I said, if we're going to do systematic strategies, we're going to do it. You, you don't want to override models. You want to have, you know, a pilot that's looking at it, but you don't want to override the cruise control. And what you saw back in the last crisis 
back in 08 and 09 that a lot of the quants, I think it was, uh, I've seen the data out there, and again, I'll, I'll be accused of the headline reading here, uh, but the quant funds, about 60% of them overrode their signals. So, you know, that kind of invalidates the back test. It invalidates all the history at that point if we're going to interject that. And I would argue that is something that is going on here. So uh, that's yeah. my soapbox speech for the day. I can, I mean, I, that was ingrained into me when, <laughs> when I started working with you in the commodities. So, I mean, I, I just like to, to summarize it as if, you know, if you're going to go systematic, why interject, you know, your behavioral biases into it by overriding the, the system that you built your back test on? So, and, and certainly for the indices that we use at DoubleLine, you know, we were neither consulted. And if we were consulted, <laughs> we would have said, no, go with, go with the rebalance, keep it going. You know, follow the rules. That's what they're there for. Yeah. Right. And Speaking on top of, of that, what? oh, I was going to say on top of that, Jeff, um, you know, um, and by the way, I don't care if the index <laughs> rebalances or whatever, because right. that's not uh, that's not part of my uh, decision making, nor is any of the investors, uh, the investment team's decision making is what's the index going to do this month? Uh, we're trying to you know, find good opportunities for clients out there. So I think it's, it's just a reminder out there that all things aren't created equal. I know I use that phrase a lot. I like to say all yields not created equal. And I think, uh, Jeff, you, you, you morphed that into not, not all betas are equal today. Yeah. Um, all right. I know we're getting up on the hour, but uh, one th I just wanted to, to say something in terms of, you know, you ingrained in me, you know, don't override your, your uh, models. But another thing you, over, you, know, you ingrained in me was never short oil. Or never short energy. <laughs> so you know, uh, you know, it's you know, we have some systematic models here in, in uh, commodity land as well. Um, oil is, you know, on the WTI basis. The last I looked at it was right under twenty five dollars a barrel. What are you guys' thoughts on what's going on in the crude energy world? Yeah, I, I gave you that that idea of don't short oil because you never know when a uh, geopolitical event happens. You never know. Typically oil prices are more susceptible to supply shocks than demand shocks. And so, um, you know, uh, so that was one of those things about never showing oil. That being said, uh, the strategies we run do have the ability to short oil. Um, and perhaps we have been short at, at times in the recent past. Um, but I think when I think about the oil market right now, um, you know, there's there's just so much uncertainty about the production side. And I think I don't know if I talked about in the last webcast. I feel like I've been talking about this for years is that, you know, this is giving the U.S. a dose of their own medicine, that the U.S. was the swing producer. We've been one of the largest marginal producers in terms of production of barrels per day um, with the invention of shale or the I'll say the revolution of shale. Shale's been around for, you know, 20 and fracking has been around 20 plus years. Uh, but the popularity of it has has led to more and more oil um, increases. And so. Uh, when I see the Saudis say, you know, damn the torpedoes, who cares about oil prices? We're going to, you know, increase production to almost max production. Um, that is not a, hey, we want to destroy oil for the sake of it. It's a play for market share. And so I think that it is very important for stabilization in the oil market for Russia, OPEC plus, um, the Saudis and the U.S. to get together and discuss this. Now, we, we're free markets folks at Double Line. We're not in here into the cartels, but I do think that there is a challenge here where OPEC was trying to moderate um, the production of oil to try to control prices, but the U.S. just always kept ratcheting up production. 
And that a lot of that is because of the position they're in, levered players that need to produce uh, oil just regardless of the price uh, to try to survive. And so I think at this stage, um, it's it's very unlikely we're going to see a big demand rebound here. Uh, <laughs> what we've seen in the recent, we, we, we got hit with the double whammy, I think, in oil prices, which actually is good to most people. Unless you're a commodity investor, oil prices being low, or you work in the oil patch, um, oil prices being lower is good for the ultimate consumer. But we got hit with the double dose of the supply shock and the demand shock. So increased supply, reduced demand. Obviously, prices um, collapse. And it reminds me of the old saying, the cure for low prices is low prices. Low prices. And, <laughs> right. So um, at the end of it, I think that we're going to be in a lower regime here. I think it's uh, positive. Not that really people are consuming massive amounts of oil. Um, I drove yesterday for the first time in three weeks when I went to the office for the webcast. So I got to say that, you know, I, I did see also another comment from um, one of the chat rooms um, from with Wall Street this morning that that guy was saying, man, I wish I could just buy a thousand gallons on at these levels and just, you know, uh, have a credit with the gas station. <laughs> right. And I'm right. like, when I drove by the gas station, prices were still very elevated here in California. And so we're still seeing things on the magnitude of almost, you know, 350 a gallon where I've seen uh, some pictures of gasoline being sub uh, sub one $1 a gallon across the country. So it's a positive, but at this point, who really cares uh, from the consumption side? It's not that you're going to go out there and consume lots of uh, gasoline. I do care for our workers in the U.S. that do produce oil, um, but at this stage, I, I think we're stuck in this 20-handle price for a while, absent some massive supply cut from both OPEC Plus and the U.S. And that meeting is happening allegedly tomorrow? Is that the uh, on Thursday, April 9th? Yeah, uh, and, OPEC, OPEC plus meeting. yeah, and you saw oil prices rebound off the lows recently, and, and that, that came from a tweet from the president last Thursday, and obviously that was very conspicuous that it came out that Thursday, and the reason I say it's conspicuous is because he put that tweet out about, uh, about uh, you know, controlling supply, and next day he had all the leaders, uh, the CEOs <laughs> from the oil industry at the White House. <laughs> So um, it's one of those things where I think he tweeted it um, to get, you know, kind of uh, those prices back to feel positive for that meeting. Um, but he didn't consult uh, with MBS or Mr. Putin about what their intentions truly were. So, uh, again, it's one of those things where in, in these times there's a lot of volatility out there. Um, and so I think that right now um, there's not a lot of hope for the, the oil industry to really rebound back to 40 or $50 a barrel. Um, in, in any time in the near future. Yeah, I guess Mr. Trump should have uh, taken a, a note from the index providers and consulted with mar market participants first. <laughs> that's, that's a good one, Sam. So, hey, uh, why don't we end it there? That way we have some more fodder if we decide to do this again next week. Um, but uh, Jeff, before you go, uh, let's have Mr. Lau introduce us to his favorite part of the show. And that favorite part of the show is Sherman Says. And again, um, I will be introducing Mr. Kimbrough to provide the prompts to each one of us in alternating format to which we will deliver a top of mind response. Let's try to keep it to one word, guys, if we can. The challenge has been. Oh, uh, we're back on. We're back on that again, huh? Let's okay. try it. Let's try it. I'm sure we'll deviate from it, but let's try. 
All right. For those of you who don't know Mr. Kimbrough, he's an analyst on our team, and he is a um, procurer of the Sherman Shed topics these days uh, while we're under uh, safety at home. So, Mr. Kimbrough, uh, why don't you lead us off with topics and let us know the order we're going in today. All right. Well, thanks for having me back again here. Uh, we're going to start off with Mr. Sherman, follow up with Mr. Lau, and go with Mr. Mayberry after. And your first prompt is opportunities. Abound. Shell-shocked. Me. <laughs> <laughs> Todd Gurley. Uh, Falcons. Do you see their, they got new uniforms yesterday. I saw the new unis Ooh. today. Um, I'll say they're better than the new Rams logo. Oh, Although, yeah. as you're all aware, I'm not a Rams fan, but that logo is pretty dang uh, hideous. Did you, uh, if you, those of you who don't know, look up what Eric Dickerson said about the Rams logo. Okay. <laughs> Uh, next, I am an Eric Dickerson fan. I'll give you that. Though. Everyone should be, <laughs> yeah. especially in Tech Mobile. Anyway, go ahead, Kim. Bro. Uh, complex systems. Unnecessary. Jerome Powell. Decent. Municipal bonds. Uh, uh, risky. Small business loan program. Necessary. Just in time. Manufacturing. Obsolete. You mean just in, do you mean just in time inventory? <laughs> uh, you, know what, yeah. you know what? I'll leave that open. It's, it's... <laughs> Obsolescence. Uh, volatility. Uh, it's falling. MLB opening day. 2021. Oh, that hurts. Giants are going to suck this year, so I, sure. I'm not you, really that. I'm not really hope, looking forward to the season will be canceled. And, uh... <laughs> yeah, so we'll call that a win for our team. <laughs> Bull market. <laughs> yeah. Fleeting. <laughs> Deflation. Ooh. Um, bigger risk today. I guess that's not one word, but it's a bigger risk today. Right. Creative destruction. Organized madness. I just like those. Uh, um, I can't think what the words are called now. Paradoxes, right? Oil patch. Uh, surplus credit spreads um, bifurcated Boris Johnson get well there you go USA top mortgage payments uh, pay them if you can there you go. Post-COVID-19 world. New era. NRSROs going to the rating agencies. Downgrades. And last, deglobalization. Uh, come in. 
All right. That's all I got. All right. Well, thank you, Mr. Kimbrough. We appreciate that. Um, thanks for helping out there. So uh, we're going to stop the podcast there. So I appreciate everyone tuning in. Uh, remember, you can follow us on the Twitter. Uh, we're putting out more tweets these days, trying to you know keep people uh, engaged with what's going on. You can follow us at Sherman Show Pod on the Twitter. Uh, that's where we we put that out. Obviously, you get these uh, podcasts from your favorite provider or the Double Line website. Uh, you can also go out to our YouTube channel. We haven't recorded any videos recently, but if you want to catch up on some of our thoughts on the pre-COVID world, uh, youtube.com backslash double line capital, all one word there, um, to to view uh, what we put out in the last um, few months or so. So again, uh, we'll try to keep these timely. Uh, we'll hopefully keep them a little more brief going forward, but we appreciate everyone uh, for listening. If you got any questions, let us know. Uh, we appreciate the hate on Mr. Mayberry's rooting for the negative 3000 Dow Day. Uh, those are some good emails there. So uh, if you like it, love it, hate it, just let us know. And if you have anything you want us to talk about in the future, also shoot us an email, shermanshow at doubleline.com. Thanks again for tuning in and, and stay tuned for the next round. presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2020 DoubleLine Capital.